the end of the chapter in verse 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We give thanks and we come to your word this morning and we ask God in all of our need, in all of our weakness, in all of our faults and failings, that you will still yet speak to us. We ask God that you would allow us to know all that you have said, that we would be drawn to you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's in 1962, Thomas Kuhn published his groundbreaking book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It doesn't necessarily equate to something like Harry Potter. It's a thick, dense book. But let me explain it to you because it is very helpful. Kuhn was critiquing the way that we commonly think about the advance of knowledge, especially scientific knowledge. He says, we tend to approach it as if knowledge just accumulates gradually over time and continues to build until it culminates to something grand. But he said, that's actually not the way scientific knowledge progresses at all. And so he is much a a history of scientific advancement. He's looking back at history and asking how it actually works. And this is what he comes up with. He says that scientists develop paradigms or theories that allow them to take the data that they observe in the world and then filter that data through and give them an understanding of what it means. He says, and so that's done for perhaps hundreds of years, but then gradually that filter begins to gunk up. Certain data doesn't pass through the filter, the interpretive grid. And so suddenly, then someone comes up with a new theory that allows them to understand the old data and the new data that was not passing through the filter. And he then explains that this is when scientific revolution happens. When we adopt a new filter that's more satisfying and allows us to deal with the comprehensive whole of all the observations that we've made. His book has been recognized as authoritative simply because it does seem true that this is the way that human knowledge works. 
And it's helpful for us because when we come to John's gospel, we meet a figure that simply blows the paradigms. He simply doesn't fit. And one of the great tasks that John has in writing his gospel, in giving to us the word of God, is to bring that figure into full light and to blow up and destroy every one of our categories. Because of whether yesterday or today, Jesus doesn't fit. See, we too have preset categories. We have filters and through which we want to understand God. And John is determined to destroy every one of those filters and to replace it with a new comprehensive understanding. Now, the second chapter of John presents us with one of the challenges of Jesus. And the first part of the chapter, Jesus is at a wedding and he saves a family from social embarrassment, working a miracle, providing wine from water because they had run out. They could have been heavily involved in uh, fines, actually. Legal action could have taken place because they ran out of wine and didn't provide the appropriate festivity. And Jesus works a miracle, of course symbolizing other things, but also rescuing that family. We see a compassionate, miracle-working Jesus. But then the second half of the chapter does something completely different. Jesus turns up in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and there with his biting wit and with a whip, he drives out those who had turned the house of God into a marketplace and into a bank. And for many people, when they look at these two stories inside of the second chapter of John, they say, this doesn't fit. How do you have a compassionate, miracle-working Jesus, and how do you have someone who's full of judgment? Those two don't seem to cohere. For John, they hold together. And the task for us is to ask the question, is our paradigm sufficient? Not is there something failing in John and the Jesus that he presents to us, but rather he presents Jesus in all of his fullness, in his character, in his mission. And John is determined to convince us, as he tells us in the first chapter, that Jesus is full of grace and Jesus is full of truth. And that's what our new paradigm permits. The one that God gives to us that allows us to appreciate and enjoy Jesus. And so in this second half of John's chapter, it's important for us to learn about who he is and what he has the authority to do. And there's five things. Sorry, I couldn't make the list brief. I'm breaking Presbyterian order, I know. Five things that John stresses here about the authority of Jesus that he would have us appreciate this morning. First, in verses 13 through 15, we see that Jesus has the authority to evaluate our worship. Follow along in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. It's common for people to ask what exactly is happening, but during the Passover feast, there were services that were necessary. Many of the Jews were traveling from a great distance and they didn't bring the sacrificial animals that they needed with them. 
And also it was at this festival once a year where every male who was over 20 years old that was a practicing faithful Israelite was to pay a certain tax. And they weren't allowed to pay that tax in Roman coin. Roman coins had idolatrous material on them and so the coins were not allowed into the temple precincts. And so you needed two things. You needed vendors who would sell to you the sacrificial victims and you needed money changers who would allow you to bring Roman coin and change it out for something else. Those two things had to happen. Now, formerly in Jewish history, that had happened on the Mount of Olives outside the city, but you see where it is now taking place. It is taking place inside the temple precinct, specifically inside the court of the Gentiles. That was the outermost court. And Jesus is here critiquing the church in their spiritual obtuseness, that there was a deep insensitivity taking place here, that they turned the house of God into a marketplace and into a bank. It had become something like a grocery store or a shopping mall. It had become something like an exchange. They had done all this inside of the house of God and they had desecrated it. And so it is this prerogative of Jesus to come in his authority and to evaluate the church as to what they're doing. And this Jesus who is here present in John 2 is the same Lord who reigns over the church today. And he has that prerogative and authority to evaluate us in our worship too. That there are many ways that we can also desecrate the house of God, that we can be spiritually obtuse ways that we fail to approach God properly and correctly. And it's important for us to always consider that week by week, day by day, that our Lord is evaluating the way that we approach him and that he has the prerogative to do so. Living in light of not fear, but knowing the personal nature of our union and communion with him and that we want to bring our best offerings and we don't want to use the house of God for our own purposes, but we want to come undistracted to commune with him. And so this is the first thing that we learn is that Jesus has this authority to evaluate our worship. Now in verse, in verse 16, we also see that Jesus possesses the authority to examine injustice. It's interesting here because after Jesus drives out the sheep and the oxen and the money changers, it then says this, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now it's intriguing because he drives out the sheep and the oxen and the money changers and then he turns and says something very specific to those who had the pigeons. And uh, for you bird lovers, this is not Jesus being extra critical. But see, in Leviticus 5, we learn that the pigeon is the offering of the poor. If you couldn't afford sheep and oxen, guess what you had to do? There was provision made in the law where you could purchase a pigeon. And so scholars have asked, of course, over time, why is it that Jesus reserves these particular words for those who are selling pigeons? We know enough of ancient Israel to know that it's probably due to price gouging. 
that there was deep injustice taking place in that outer court and that pigeons weren't being sold for fair prices. And there was injustice amongst the people of God and profit and graft were being made in selling offerings. And friends, this is the unique right of our Lord Jesus to examine the church in her righteousness and in her unrighteousness. That he alone is the one who sees and knows that he has the right and prerogative to look and that he's the one that we should always desire to please and he's the one who puts the standards in front of us and those are the standards we're to reach out to because he does examine and he knows and he sees. As we read in Psalm 11, that the Lord is in his holy temple and he sees and knows his eyelids test mankind. That's the truth. And that's the Jesus who's present with us, the miracle working Jesus and also the evaluating Jesus. The third thing we see in verse 14 is that this Jesus also possesses the authority to critique our mission. I mentioned just a moment ago that this was all taking place in the court of the Gentiles and Permit me a brief moment of architecture. In the Temple Mount, there was proceeding, there were courts layered upon one another in which you moved from the profane to the more holy to the most holy. And then only the high priest was allowed in the central most holy space once a year. And then the Jewish nation was allowed in another court to make offerings. And the Gentiles were allowed in the outer court. But Isaiah in chapter 56 of his book reminds us that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And that, of course, was just building on the promise of God that we find all the way back in Genesis 12, that God singled out Abraham and promised to bless him. And he said, I will bless you and your descendants that you may be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So it was always the intent of God's plan with Israel. It was never to become an ethnic ghetto. It was never to become a dead end. It was always on the way to something, to the nations of the earth, through Israel. And yet here we find that the church had turned that outer court that was meant to be a blessing to the world, they had turned it into their mall. And they had sheep and oxen and all the mess that would come with that. They had pigeons and all their poop. there in the church that was to be for the nations. A place of prayer, a place of hearing the word of God, a place of appreciating the promises of God had been desecrated because Israel was not oriented to the nations. And so Jesus sits in critique that the light that was given to the world had been snuffed out and despite all of their pomp and despite all of their ability to do their worship in formal ways, despite their ability to observe the Passover in the proper manner, they had forgotten the reason for which God had blessed them. And so Jesus evaluates them on that. And that same Lord continues to look on his church today and he has that same prerogative. Fourth piece to this in verses 18 through 21 we see that Jesus has the unique authority to mediate the grace of God. 
This caused a stir, of course, when Jesus was driving out the money changers and those who were selling the the oxen and the pigeons and all these things. And so he's asked in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This was a critical remark. Here was a redneck from Galilee showing up doing this in the capital city of Jerusalem. What in the world was happening is basically what is going on here. And Jesus answered them, and he answered them in a preposterous way. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's a challenge. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. That's the sign I'm going to give you. They didn't say, it took us 46 years. (laughs) They weren't about to destroy it to see if he could make good on his claim. But then, of course, there's a deeper meaning to what Jesus says. And if you follow in verse 21, we discover it. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And there is a prophetic edge to this. Destroy this temple and it will be raised up in three days. And he is referring to his body that would be consumed by his zeal for the house of God. Because of that zeal, he was devoured. He was put to death. But it was raised up. And the temple of God for all of these first century Jews and all who had come before them was a unique place. It was a place that they were to go three times a year to offer thanks to God. They had Psalms dedicated to the journey up to Jerusalem. If you follow from 120 to 134, you'll find the Psalms of Ascent that the people were to sing in thanksgiving as they went up to worship God. The temple was the center of their life and of their faith. It was at the temple where they believed heaven and earth were made one, that God dwelled amongst them, that his glory was there. And it was at the temple that sacrifice was made, where there was atonement for sins. And it was at the temple where they were told that their prayers were to be directed and they were heard by God. In this small statement by Jesus, that the temple is his body, He's claiming that he replaces and supersedes all the functions of the temple. That heaven and earth dwell together in him. And that is what John has told us back in chapter one. He tells us that he is the one who atones for sins. He is the priest and he is the victim. He tells us that prayers are heard by God through him. All the things that the temple was to be, Jesus is claiming that he is the one who now mediates that. It's a monstrous claim. But when we hear and appreciate it, we find that all the shelter and refuge that we need, everything that we need from God for this life is found in Jesus that he's the one hope for every one of us in all of our faults, in all of our failures, in all of our shortcomings, in our sins, in our rebellion, that Jesus is the one who mediates that grace that we desperately need. He's the guarantee that our prayers are heard because our prayers go to God through him. And that's the answer for desperate sinners. And Jesus says that he has the authority to mediate that grace And so it's yours. When you look to him, you claim that authority. 
He is not somehow deciding whether he's going to give it to you or not. When you look to him and you turn to him and you ask him, he is pleased to answer. He has the authority to give it to you. That belongs to him. And so turn to him. Find grace in him. Finally, in verse 22, we also discover the key to all this authority. This is what John says. He says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples were somewhat miffed by these actions also, but there was a later event that would somehow bring all of this together. And that was of course the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when his body was raised, that mysterious statement that destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days suddenly made sense. And friends, this is the key to all theology and all commitment to Jesus. Every bit of authority he has is because of this seminal moment in the history of creation when God raised a man from the dead. People sometimes ask, why are you a Christian? That answer can come in many different forms, but at its basest form, the answer is that God raised a man from the dead. And I believe that. And that is the determining center point. It's the beginning of everything, that all theology drives to that point that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, declaring that he's innocent and righteous. And all who look to him in faith now share in his innocence and in his righteousness. And that we're relieved from the burden of our sins and our prayers are heard by God. That we are united to him, forgiven and freed, one family now under his care. And so the resurrection is everything. It offers all hope. Flannery O'Connor, who many of you know I appreciate, and some have then turned to read her and found it very difficult, and I understand that as well. So this is no endorsement. But she gets things. In her novel, A Good Man is Hard to Find, she's speaking of the resurrection, she's speaking of Jesus, and she says this through one of her characters. He, Jesus, has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. And this is the truth of the resurrection. Everything hinges on it. John hinges everything on it. All of this authority that we've ascribed to Jesus exists because he got up from the dead. He's the one who can examine the church. He's the one who can evaluate our justice and our righteousness. He's the one who can critique our mission. He's the one who can mediate the grace of God. Why? Why does all of that belong to him? Because he got up from the dead. He was the one without sin. And so allow him to exercise all of that authority in your life and find in him grace and find in him truth and know that you're safe inside of that packaging together, that there's nothing to fear, that in the revelation of our sins, there's grace to be found. 
And this is why it's so hard for us to appreciate Jesus because we so desperately want to pull those two things apart. But your Lord is committed to righteousness. He's committed to freeing the world from sin. And he's committed to gracious forgiveness. Allow all of that to be the Jesus that you know. Let that interpretive grid rule your life. Let's pray. And Father, as we come and as we hear all that you have done for us and all that Jesus is for us, we ask that we would accept it and believe and that we would know in his resurrection all the authority that you freely give him and will we allow that authority to operate in our lives. Give us grace, help us where we're weak. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.